Welcome to another Leaders Performance Podcast episode, this time as part of the New State of Play series. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute. I'd like to say hello again to all the returning listeners who may have subscribed to the At Home with Leaders podcast. But if not, I'd like to say hello and a big welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time. The pace of change and high performance has accelerated and we are entering a new era for performance. But what is the state of play and how is high performance evolving? The Leader State of Play series explores these themes across a series of webinars, articles and podcasts. And a new era for performance also means a new era for the Leaders Performance Institute as we have been working hard to provide our members with more access to the diverse knowledge, skills and networks they need as performance environments change and evolve. If you want to push your thinking and actions even further, find out about joining our unrivaled network of the world's high performance community by visiting our website at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Now on to today's episode, I've decided to draft in my leaders colleague Luke Whitworth to help ask questions today. How are you this afternoon, Luke? I'm very well, Matt. Thank you very much. Hopefully you are too. Yes, not too bad. Looking forward to this. Well, our guest today is someone who I met for the first time at one of our first events, I think it was, probably back in 2014, which feels like a lifetime ago now. I guess job title-wise is Chief at Hoko, but as to many people, it will be described as a performance coach, and I think it's the way he describes himself, uh, and also an expert on team culture and leadership. It's Owen Eastwood. Good afternoon, Owen. How are you today? Very good. Great to talk to you guys. Great to have you on. Now, we're going to get straight into it, and we had a chat the other day about your exciting new book that's coming up next year so for the listeners out there just talk us through a little bit of the inspiration for the upcoming book and what's it called and, and just tell us a little bit about it fantastic yeah the book is called belonging it's coming out at the end of may next year and yeah it's been quite a few years thinking about what i'd want to put in it and then uh, over the lockdown i've had a fantastic unique opportunity to write it up yeah, the inspiration for belonging really comes from, as you guys know, I've had a quite an accidental journey as a performance coach. You know, I was a lawyer for 20 years. I was a partner in a city law firm. And then without any intent at all, started getting asked to get involved in some reviews of teams. And from that, taking a particular interest in team culture and leadership and opportunities have sort of arisen over time to have some incredible experiences. One of, one of the things that's really drew my attention from the start was that and, you know, I'm an outsider. I'm not trained in it. don't have any qualifications for any of this uh, work, really. It's just experiential where I've, where I've got to. But what, one of the things I really was drawn to early on was that this incredible role of team dynamics, how it influences team and individual performance, yet how misunderstood it really is in high-performing environments. And, you know, it really is quite fundamental to performance, but quite hard to get clear and simple guidance, I found, on what the hell is going on in these team environments. And why does one thing from a leader or a peer or even a, a junior member of a team have such an influence on others' behavior and mindset and ultimately performance? I just struggled for years. I had to try and figure it out myself. And what, what I found was that although there are a lot of sports psychologists uh, who are outstanding involved in high-performing teams a lot of a lot of that is really around the individual less so the group so people are very confident talking about the mindset and the mental skills and the performance of an individual but get less confident when you ask them how is this impacted by the environment and the people around them so this became a bit of a obsession for me is that I really wanted to understand this and I remember 
we're doing some work with City Football Group and one day Pete Lindsay, who's a consultant there and worked at the English Institute of Sport, came and spoke. I remember him saying that there was a meta study undertaken by the English Institute of Sport where they believe that 70% of an individual's behaviour is determined by whatever environment they're in. And that was the moment where I felt I can actually see it. And that was the first sort of verification of that truth. So that made me even more obsessed to try and understand this area better. And, and last year I had a bit of a breakthrough really. I came across Professor Robin Dunn at Oxford University and Professor Dunbar is a world expert on human evolution and I just thought maybe he's got a different way of understanding team dynamics so I made contact with him he invited me to meet him at his college and we had a fantastic morning and you know he asked me to explain the fundamentals of what you'd expect in a high-performing team you know, the environment the way a leader would uh, operate those type of things and when I finished giving him a generic answer he said you've just described what a human group of hunter-gatherers would have been like 60,000 years ago that there is no difference in the fundamentals of what makes teams strong and what makes them weak over the course of our evolutionary story and that was huge and he, he went on to really explain to me where our need to belong comes from how human beings are much more motivated by a collective purpose than an individual purpose uh, what our preferences and leaders are uh, our need for an identity story to attach ourselves to uh, the micro signaling that happens in environments which have a massive impact on people's hormonal state and behaviors and what I call the silent dance and that's how teams are really profoundly impacted by cliques for better or worse but they're natural uh, by alpha males and females who they are where, why they behave the way they do and the impact good and bad that can have on a group and these type of things so that was a real breakthrough for me because I just felt like that really explained things in a very simpler way so um, once I sort of reflected on what I'd learnt from you know Robin Dunbar what I realised is and I'm part Maori myself the indigenous people of New Zealand is I realised that a lot of those insights were actually possessed by our ancestors because if we think about it you know they, they didn't have data they didn't have technology the way we do they didn't have consultants that was for sure they didn't really have big strategy either what they had was each other and so for them to be successful even to survive was completely reliant on how strong their group was so they were in a very visceral way in touch with what makes teams strong and what screws them up and a lot of the ancestral ideas I have from my own culture captures a lot of this in a very practical way and I'd never quite understood the connection but then I came to see that our ancestors had been trying to explain this to us for hundreds of years and we'd stop listening and that we've become a little bit conceited in thinking that we know it all ourselves and that the answer lies in data and technology and not in the human beings standing in front of you. So Belonging is a book really which I try to identify these evolved preferences and needs we have when we become part of a group. I invoke our ancestors' wisdom and then I refer to my own experiences but other experiences as well of teams in high-performing environments today where they invoke that wisdom and that ranges from the work I'm doing here with with England football and the British Olympic team through the All Blacks, through the Chicago Cubs, the Seattle Seahawks who invoke indigenous Native American Indian ideas and um, trying to show in a very practical way how this wisdom can be applied for leaders and teams today. Sounds fascinating and the topic today is going to be around the kind of the, the power of diverse thinking and um, I want to just start with what a leader looks like, uh, how important diversity is to a leader. So so I guess the first question really is, is how do you define a leader? Yeah, I, I think we've lost our way around leading as a species, <laughs> if I can put it like that. Again, if we go into our evolutionary story, and let's go back millions of years, that we, like a lot of other primates, were in the jungle. And we, our human ancestors, decided that we would actually, for whatever reason, make our way into the open grassland 
lands. So we went from a jungle environment where you could gather pretty much what you needed to an open grasslands environment where we didn't have any physiological advantage in terms of speed or strength or anything else. And we were very, very exposed to predators and the climate uh, as well, um, as well as other species and other tribes of humans as well. And, and what happened over time is that the competitive advantage that Homo sapiens was able to generate was in our ability to form these very tight bonded groups who could defend themselves, take care of each other, uh, but also compete, you know, compete for resources, com- compete for food, etc. And that has become the super strength of, of who we are. And I would argue to this day, it remains our super strength. And if you think back in 99% of human history, we're hunter-gatherers. So the world we live in today is very, very recent. Even agriculture is quite recent. But for 99% of our human history, we're hunter-gatherers, and this is the life we led. And so the whole purpose of a group was to take care of each other. That was the whole reason for having a group. If you were isolated or rejected, you were destined to die very quickly. So we formed groups to protect each other. And therefore, the leader's role was very, very obvious. They were the guardian of this group. All of their actions and decisions had to be in the interest of the safety and security of the group. And so over these millennia, we've evolved our preferences, even unconscious, that we expect our leaders to take care of us. So when we shifted into a modern environment now, where there seems to be now more of a tolerance that leaders have to get an outcome, and along the way they can sacrifice the well-being of their people, that's not natural from my understanding of our evolutionary story. That is actually an unnatural thing that's evolved in very recent times. And, you know, you think about, you know, football manager is the term used for the leader or or the same in baseball. And, you know, a lot of that was reflective of the Industrial Revolution where all of a sudden we had these factories and these factory lines and production lines where basically you get a group of people together. They all have a discrete task. One does this, the next one does that. And all of a sudden 11 people do their job and you've got a tin of beans at the end of it. And so the role of the leader in that very linear type of working was to make sure that everyone did their task. And if they didn't, you replace someone who would. And that's really permeated into the way um, management still is now in business and uh, I believe in sport. But to me, that's not what leading is. That's managing. Leading has to start with, I have a responsibility and a duty to these people to take care of them as we identify this mission that we're going to go on together. And I don't damage people. And that's not a price that we're prepared to pay. And, you know, I, I really get upset when you look at scandals around the world and some of the statistics that's coming back from gymnastics, not just in this country, in other countries, ballet, which is uh, I've been involved in myself as a performance coach, other Olympic sports where the post-career stats around well-being are absolutely horrendous. People like four times more likely to have mental health problems later in life, eating disorders, as well as physical injury. But this is all seen as a price that's okay to pay in order to achieve an outcome. So I suppose getting back onto my hobby horse here, (laughs) I actually don't think that's a natural definition of what a leader is. I I think a leader's role is still fundamentally to take care of their people and seek a mission and take them on a mission which will benefit uh, everybody going forward. And it's, it's interesting during this pandemic, people are taking time out and looking at the big picture. And what's coming back, I'm hearing a lot, is leaders saying, you know what, I've recommitted myself to really take care of the people. And our well-being now is number one priority. And all of this. And I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear it. But what I would say is there's nothing new in that. That is simply through this incredible moment, we are reconnecting back to the natural story of who we are and the natural role of a leader. I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting that you say that because I think I, I, I'd agree in that we've seen a, 
we'll see probably a bit of a shift in um, how to lead potentially with some people and more of a focus on the, the person and, and caring for your people versus more of those outcomes. Um, I suppose, do, do you think that the pandemic actually presents an opportunity for a different type of leader that's actually more in line with, uh, you know, with your beliefs around this? Yeah, I'm definitely hoping so. People are suffering and people are very, very anxious. And people need to understand that the leader who has responsibility for them genuinely cares about them and is going to be there for them. And again, it's the most natural thing in the world. I mean, the ultimate form of leadership is being a parent, isn't it? And the idea that, you know, as a, as a, as a parent, we have outcomes and KPIs that we must achieve and that the well-being of uh, children are secondary just makes absolutely zero sense. So when we're responsible for a different type of group, I, I personally don't see why there should be a difference. So, you know, when we have coaching, which is bordering on bullying, and people are uh, their self-confidence and self-esteem is diminished by the experience they're treated like children you know i've seen in football where you know you have men who are have three children proper human beings adults parents be it treated like five-year-olds in, in, in their performance environment it made absolutely no sense to me I, 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 mm-hmm. so i am hoping that we're having a little bit of a time out here and just reflecting and this idea that taking care of people is in conflict with the optimal performance is absolute nonsense i challenge anyone to show me any statistics that shows that if you take care of people you diminish your performance all the evidence points exactly the other way you know, for example if you are feeling very anxious in an environment because you don't feel you belong you feel like you're an outsider um, that you don't feel that people trust you you're not getting any of those signals then you absolutely leak energy you leak focus you're in self-preservation mode you're trying to survive you're not thinking about the team first you are just wanting to get through this experience and I've in the book I, I get proper performers to tell their very personal stories about what that feels like um, I include Michael Owen in the book who gives a, a really powerful contrast about the feeling of belonging at Liverpool versus the feeling of being an outsider at Real Madrid you know and anyone is welcome to try and convince him that that doesn't affect your performance so uh, the, the sooner we and you guys are so important in this because people really respect you and you have such a great platform is that sooner we can just get to the point where everyone understands it the better we take care of people the better their performance will be then we can really motor with this stuff but I do find still you, you go to these conferences and these workshops and some people still need persuasion that this is actually not in conflict with winning medals yeah that, that's that's fascinating I, I think Matt could probably agree with me here as well and that probably one of the questions that we hear the most from all of our conversations whether it's at events or whether it's through think tanks we run is is actually how do you create a high performance environment how do you do it like what, but what exactly uh, does that entail what and i suppose the question that i would ask is based on um you know your research and your organizations you've worked with as well is is in your opinion like what are the cornerstones of these high performing environments you know what would you see and um, would be almost advising leaders to to be focusing on and trying to prioritize to actually get that optimal performance that you just mentioned yeah one of the first things i think is let's not look at culture as a as a standalone aspect of performance culture is the environment and the experience we have every minute of every day so it is integrated completely into the performance program so let's let's not try and think of it as something separate i think that's unhelpful Mm. Uh, in terms of the cornerstones we start off with as a group of human beings, what's our purpose? And that needs to be answered incredibly simply and quickly. 
It's not, if we need consultants and we need months to figure it out, we're completely barking up the wrong tree. Our purpose should be pretty clear about why we are here and what we're trying to achieve. And once we answer that very simply and very matter-of-factly, then we move quickly into creating a vision. So what, if that's our purpose, then what does success look like? And, you know, for example, the British Olympic team, English football team, they share something around you know, trying to inspire and unify the people they represent. Okay, great. So what is, how do we visualize that? What would success therefore look like in the Euros or in the Olympics? Because it's not just the scoreboard, is it? If you're trying to inspire and unify a diverse people you represent, you need to do something a bit more than just winning. You're going to have to be a mirror for them to look into and go, wow, that's who we are. That is very cool. I can relate to that. This is this is a beautiful way of understanding what it is to be British or English. So so that visioning is so important. And again, it's not a strap line or an outcome. It's like a real deep three-dimensional understanding of this is what we are seeking to achieve together. And it's just like athletes individually visualize their performance. And as teams, why don't we invest the same amount of time in visualizing what the hell we're trying to do? You know, I've ne- I never quite understood that. You know, the, the, in terms of neural pathways and hard wiring and preparing us, it's exactly the same principle. So, so we create a vi- so from our purpose, we create the vision, and then we create the strategy. From there, the strategy is just how do we unlock that vision? And it's primarily identifying a gap between where we are today and we'll, and what that vision's realization is. So these things are very, very simple. And then, then we get to culture. <laughs> this is how I work anyway. And that is, <laughs> in order to achieve that vision, we have to build an environment to drive certain behaviors. So we need to friggin' sit down and design this. It's not about having a good bunch of people who just turn up and fingers crossed we have good chemistry in inverted commas. We, we, you know, and the Seattle Seahawks, I think, are outstanding. And I document their story in the book about they have so much intent about their environment to the point that every single morning before they train, coaches meet and preview the environment and experience that they're going to create that day. Yeah, this isn't like a once in a season sort of workshop. This is a daily ritual. And, you know, I remember I did some work with an investment bank a few years ago as a performance coach. And I learned a lot, actually, because their strategy was based on innovating. But when I actually looked at their environment, for someone to get a deal done, they had to go through 17 levels of permission. And so so that was a, a situation where your environment was disabling your strategy and your vision. It wasn't enabling it, wasn't empowering it, it was actually in direct conflict with it. And actually, that to me is really interesting because if you look at high-performing teams, for example, often the culture and environment is disabling what they're trying to achieve in their vision. And um, I've heard, you know, strategy-wise and, you know, let's have shared ownership with players and let's um, um, have their input and buy-in and all these things. And then actually look at the environment and they're not. They're very highly directive. And in fact, if players take risks and don't work out, they can be shamed when the team is reviewing the performances, et cetera. So that's what I look for is like, what's the environment today like in terms of enabling or disabling our strategy? And then how do we design something which is world-class and going to really unlock the talent in the team? So that's how I sort of come across it. And I, I do think it's very contextual. So I, I don't really believe you do one, you do, you do A, B, C, and then you have a great culture. I think it's very contextual. A couple of years ago, I was invited to spend some time with one of the leading football teams in France and they, they were really struggling. And when I went into that environment, their purpose was there. Their identity was, was sort of there. They had values. So they had all these things that people talk about, but the big problem was they had three alpha alphas in the team who had created three different cliques or in competition with each other. The whole week was focused around conflict internally between these alphas and these cliques. So that's from a, a cultural point of view where we needed to put our focus, you know, not just on following a, a, a model. I love that, Owen. Thank you. And you mentioned a few words there like vision and 
painting painting that picture. So I wanted to ask the question: the the relationship between power of story and and high performance environments. I know you I know you like to talk about that and feel passionate about that. But you know how 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 do they link together? How do they intertwine that that power of story and 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 the, the environments themselves? So what, what, what I like to do is when we design an environment and start to curate it, that we wrap it in an identity story of this is who we are, this is what makes us different, this is what makes us friggin' special. And and that's our identity. So I bet you guys you guys probably go to more performance settings than I do, but it's quite incredible, isn't it, when you go around them, how generic and corporate and often sterile those environments are. You know, they all look pretty much the same. They've got the same Muhammad Ali quotes. You know, they've got the values of pretty, you know, excellence and, you know, Trust and all these sort of words everywhere, and there's no there's no clues to what their identity actually is. And humans, we are tribal. Our, our super strength is belonging to a group, and we emotionalize that by feeling part of a family kin tribe and so when we go into a team that's what we're looking for we're expecting someone to explain to us that this is a very special tribe that you are part of and once it's framed in that way then we get a big emotional buy-in and if it's just framed as kpis and being measured all the time it's a soulless experience and i I think it makes a massive difference i think if you look at a team like the all blacks the way they drive their performance through this identity story is is incredible and it's a still stuns me as to how little that's been replicated in, in other environments and you know what what ultimately an identity story does is it creates an archetype of the type of person I want to be and this comes into something we've spoken about before where you know, I think 2011 was a really interesting example so the Rugby World Cup was held in New Zealand the All Blacks ultimately won it but just before their semi-final two of the players misbehaved they went out broke curfew got a bit drunk and in a public sort of a way. And then at the same World Cup, you had other incidents with the England rugby team, you know, involving, you know, Mike Tindall and James Haskell and Manu Tuolangi, etc. And what was very, very interesting around culture to me was that the way the All Blacks dealt with that, there was no formal process. There were no rules. The players had to go and meet with their senior peers in the team and explain their behaviour. Then those play and the coaches and the New Zealand rugby management were out of it. And then the players then had to front up at a meeting and explain their behaviour and apologise. And then the team together decided on what appropriate sanction was for them. And the, the, the biggest shaming that happened was the fact that they hadn't met the standard of what it was to be part of that tribe. That was the thing that hurt them the most. And that's how they addressed the issue. When you look at the England team in that World Cup, what happened? And I know this because I was a lawyer at the time and I represented um, a couple of the guys. Was that you know media releases, formal disciplinary hearings formal processes with a judge-like figure, punishments, bans, fines, the players coming out um, with cameras, you know, like criminals, which has, I think, massively affected those guys and probably will do so forever. And that, and that was a different culture where you were basically trying to drive behaviour through rules and processes versus one which has really had a strong sense of identity, which is, is a hell of a lot more powerful in my view. Now, if we if we if we pivot slightly now to this topic of, of diversity a little bit more, because I think it's one that I'd love I'd love to delve into with, with, with you, Owen. Um, and you know, many many people out there, you know, a few authors, a few columnists are describing this as maybe the age of diversity. People will sit on each side of the fence there. But to what extent do you maybe subscribe to that view if, if you do at all? Well, I think there's no doubt that, you know, from a global point of view, teams are becoming more diverse just as nations are. And the real challenge, it's, it's actually not hard, is it, to recruit diversity. The, the real challenge is how you create a truly shared experience 
and the shared sense of identity in a team. And, you know, one thing I got to understand from, you know, Robin Dunbar and was that the natural thing that happens in groups, including diverse groups, is that they be- a group, a team, an organisation ends up becoming colonised by one dominant clique. So although the team is diverse their belief system and the way they do things really reflects the dominant culture in the group. And uh, for example, you know, some law firms and corporate banks are, are much more diverse now than they used to be. But the, some of the fundamental beliefs in the way of operating and doing and the top-down approach is probably not much different than 100 years ago. And it's because the prevailing dominant culture is still there pretty rock solid and I've seen the same thing in sports um, you know with the South African cricket team I've worked with you know we have six different cultures and religions and ethnicities in our best 11 you know quite probably one of the most diverse teams in the world but for a long time actually the culture was very much a white way of seeing the world and doing things and not everybody looks at the world or wants to be that way so that, that's a real challenge for me is how do we create a genuinely shared experience and shared way of doing things and the way I think about it is that you know when we bring a diverse team together we all stand in a circle around each other and we and we and we look at each other and we we friggin love each other we love our diversity we love our craziness we love the difference um we respect the hell out of where people have come from and we get our arms around each other and it's we and, and we can feel the strength of it and it, and it is pure strength, the fact that we are different and we have this diversity. But what we must do is we have to step inside the circle together. And in order to do that, we have to define a space where everybody is comfortable entering into and feels that it reflects them as a person. And that is the challenging, um, the challenge that sits before leaders is to have the courage to actually do that. You know, what, one thing that's really understated, I think, is before the All Blacks won the World Cups in 2011 and 2015, one of the things they realised was that, you know, for about 100 years, the dominant group in the All Blacks was white European ethnic players. But over the last decade or so, more than 50% of the team are now Polynesian. And they realised that the way they did things was actually not reflective of or inclusive of the reality of who they were now. So what, just one little thing, but I think a powerful thing they did was they got each of the cultures, guys from each of the different cultures, about four or five in the team, just to stand in front of the team and just explain to the rest of the team, in my culture, this is our core beliefs. This, these are the things that are sacred to us. These are the things that affect me when I come into this place. And out of that really powerful conversation, and I, I talk about this in Belonging uh, through um, Jerome, Jerome Kaino and um, Anton Oliver, is that they started to get a real appreciation of what is it that we have in common. And then they built the team identity, renewed it around those things. Not what one dominant clique, the way they see the world, but what we actually found we have in common. And we've done very much the same thing with the South African cricket team. Um, I finished working with them about a year ago, but over a 10-year period, we very much did a similar thing where we tried to find a shared purpose, which we found in the African idea of Ubuntu, which means the uh, measure of our lives is our impact on others. That was something that every single cultural group, ethnicity can ascribe to and bought into. We found values, um, which everybody had their own story and their own meaning to. So it wasn't, you know, Anglo-Saxon values, here they are. These were values that we found that everybody had very different ways of talking about them, but fundamentally the same belief systems. So we, we started to build this identity around what these shared values were. 
and even the way we played, we had some amazing conversations where I recall players, Africana players, talking about the lager mentality, which comes back to, you know, historically, you know, they would protect themselves against, you know, warring tribes or, or the British or, or even predators by putting their wagons in a circle. And that's how they would, and that has become a, a mindset in many ways, very powerful cultural mindset around like, we will not be defeated, but it's a defensive way of looking at things. Versus if you listen to some of the Af- African indigenous guys they said no it's not us we, we, we don't want to be like that we want to be the guys who throw the first punch we want to be aggressive we don't want to be the guys who are resilient take all the punches like rope a dope we want to be the guys who are throwing the punches so he created a conversation and out of that the team formed a way of playing which reflected the full diversity of the team because if you just chose one the dominant groups then a lot of people are going to say this isn't who i am and they don't feel that sense of belonging and even that sense of commitment to that so I think that's a real challenge, certainly in a high-performing environment, we've just got to get this right, is that to get the best out of everybody in a diverse team, we have to find where that shared space sits. I mean, I suppose to put yourself in a, the shoes of a you know, a head coach or a leader of a team or an organisation, you gave a lovely anecdote there to run how the All Blacks approach that. I mean, I suppose, how, how can people on teams begin to, to learn from the differences between each other? Like, how, how would you go about doing that if you were a leader? What, what would you, what would probably the best practices or some ideas that you could, you could kind of use to try and bring that to life, do you think? I think that'd be really interesting to explore. You know, one of the things I recommend that leaders do, and not just in sport, but in other environments, is to find a space where you talk to the diversity of your team and you ask them, how do you find the experience of being here? What does it feel like for you? If you could, if you could change the way we did things, what would it look like? What would you feel more belonging and more of a shared identity with those around you? What sort of things would you do? I'll give you some examples. And I've had people who have asked that question, leaders, and that's what's come back to them is that you appraise me and give me feedback once a year. And this is like in corporate environments. In my culture, it's just a never-ending conversation. And you measure me by KPIs and by statistics, and you've got these algorithms that measure my billing and... <laughs> all my performance and my speed, all of these things. In my culture, I'm a human being who's been given talent by my God, and you don't focus on the talent. You're focusing on these things that you find you can measure. And this feels like a soulless experience to me. And I've had people who have represented England who have felt this way, that the way we do things here is missing the whole point of what, who I am and what experience and what I feel I can bring to the team. You know, another example is some cultures feel like it's okay to be bold and to take risks and other cultures are very risk averse. So you can have people a real clash around that. So it's actually fascinating and, you know, I've been part of these for a few years where you just ask, you know, you need to have some equity and some trust to, to have those conversations, but it's incredibly powerful when you've got a good leader who just sits down, not just everybody in a workshop, it might be taking people out for dinner or whatever, just asking them the question, what is this experience like for you? Is this a place where you we can get the best out of you? If not, what would we need to shift? And from that, you will get plenty of clues as to where the culture can evolve. I suppose, do, do, do you think then, I mean, that people and us operating in, in sport have a pretty set way of thinking, actually? Or, or do you generally encounter that diversity through different modes, modes of thinking? What, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think... From a sporting perspective, we often look at how we can be more creative, uh, how that's probably a struggle for some environments because of the need to win and win quickly. I mean, you, you might laugh at this, but <laughs> in my view, you know, people talk about the age of data and then people talk about the age of psychology. And I actually do think the next big phase is going to be around team dynamics. 
Um, I do. I think there's going to be much richer understanding of it, and it's going to be integrated into the way we coach and lead in a in a much clearer way than it has been in the past. Yeah, you know, if I'm sort of brutally honest, I think you know I'm based in England, and this country and some of the previous colonies of the country. I think there's a very Anglo-Saxon way of doing things, which is still per- very pervasive. Um, it is around that idea of managing people. The care piece can be sometimes a little bit unobvious. Um, it's very, very much driven by process and planning and measurement, and the experience that that can overwhelm the whole experience. And, you know, I feel like that's not sustainable in my view in this country in the next few decades because the country is becoming much more diverse. There are different ways of understanding how you get the best out of groups and the best performance out of people. And I just think it's going to change. And, you know, one of the things I absolutely have found very satisfying over the last few years is working with Gareth Southgate because, you know, what he has done without any great fanfare, but, you know, he has inherited in, in the FA and English football, you know, very much a working class Anglo-Saxon way of understanding in football and, and managing teams in the game. But he's understood that he actually has an incredibly diverse team. And he realizes that, you know, their competitive advantage might not just be talent. It might be something around that trust and togetherness and motivation that he can instill in them. And in order to do that, they need to come up with a culture and ultimately a way of playing, which everybody buys into and feels very emotionally bound to. And so I think that's what's going to happen much more in this country is that leaders like him are going to stand up and say, we need to redefine what it is to be part of this team and what it is to represent a very diverse country. How might you encourage teams or groups or leaders, I guess, to, to probe for those gaps in their, in, in, in their collective understanding? When a team is underperforming, what I would say is let's just take a little bit of time to reflect on whether we've got the best possible environment and culture to get the performance from these guys. You know, we can bring people in and out and we can sack coaches. That's fantastic. You know, human sacrifices. Well, that's great. But if the underperformance, lack of achievement is sustained over a reasonable period of time, then there's something very environmental about what's holding us back. So that is a big clue to me is that we need to really, really consider this. And I'll come back to what I said before. I mean, I do it myself. When I want to go into a new environment, I just ask a very simple question of people, you know, once we've built some trust between us and, and ask them, is this the best environment to get the best out of you? And from that, you can normally uh, assess reasonably quickly whether these issues are alive. I've got a really interesting question, right? I'm just going to put you on the spot. But I mean, <laughs> you're talking about diverse thinking and, um, you know, in turn, I guess, how this can positively influence the environment and, and the culture we're operating in. So can that diversity of thought be measured into a, in, in a tangible sense? What are your thoughts on that? I'm not sure about measured. Um, in belonging, actually, I talk about this, that our ancestors were not very good at measuring things to the second decimal point but they were very clear on cause and effect. So, for example, the ancient Polynesian navigators who were part of my own ancestry, they wouldn't know the distance between two islands in a measured way. But what they did know was where um, the winds, currents, uh, all of these elements, how that would affect where they went and how far they got. So, so to me, in terms of measuring is one thing. I think cause and effect is more, you know, is, is what leaders need to be clear about. So I would say when it comes to the diversity of thinking in a team is that you can't just will it to happen. You need to have trust in the environment. Your leaders have to role model 
um, obviously with some vulnerability, but also getting people to input into the idea generation and the way they review and preview things. So all of those things need to be in existence in order to take advantage of the diversity of thinking there. Otherwise, everyone will just shut up in self-preservation mode. So that's very important. But I think the one other thing to re- remember is that for a high-performing team, ultimately you have to all agree on the direction you're going on. It's all very well to have a lot of debate and different diverse opinions. That's great. I think it's absolutely essential. But at the end of the day, you do need to all commit to one direction on how we're going to do this. And it's not great having people who still hold on to their own you know, particular views and how things should be done. Because what we really, you know, is a critical element of success is, is clarity and alignment. So it's a matter of managing this. You know, just having diversity of opinion in itself is not the answer. You need a proper environment to get it out, but you also need an environment which can close it out and get everybody headed in the same place. How can groups and even intellectually very diverse groups, how can they prevent from later gravitating towards groupthink? How can they sense check themselves along the way um, rather than have once a year or twice a year talk about it in a, in a big group setting? How do they continually sense check against that so they don't move into that groupthink attitude? That, you know, that's a very, very good point. I, in belonging, I actually um, try and share something I learned, which was that we have this very powerful human need to conform to those around us. And this all comes back to our need to belong. So, you know, studies have shown something like in, within milliseconds, we can perceive whether we are out of sync or saying something or even thinking something differently to others. Within milliseconds, we will, uh, that message will arrive. And then Again, within milliseconds, we will adapt our behavior so that we fit in with them. This is a sort of area when it comes to team dynamics, I think people just are hungry to learn more about, is that we start with this. It's not a matter of individual personalities. We start, all of us, with this real drive to conform and therefore belong and feel safe with those around us. So actually, even understanding that makes people understand that, okay, the way you're feeling um, and groupthink, you know, those type of phenomena are natural, just natural, not a bad thing. It's just a natural thing. But if we actually put it on the table, we can disrupt it. But we're going to have to have a little bit of intent to, to disrupt that. So that, that's the first thing is to understand that. Second thing is, you know, if we're going to have one big conversation a year, you know, we're not taking advantage of the diversity of thinking and, and the diversity of the group. I think what powerful cultures and teams do is they make this stuff structural. So these things are every into our weekly rhythm. We have little groups, various meetings, which are there continually invited to review and challenge. You know, whether it's a, a unit group, whether it's a player leadership group, whether it's an interface between the coaches and the players, you know, whatever it is, we create all these different and we put them into our structure. Uh, we create all these different moments where the way we are doing things is being properly reviewed and reflected on and, and if necessary, challenged. And we're not doing it once a month or we're not doing it after we've lost three games in a row. It's built into the normal course of how we act. And I think that's really important. And certainly with player leadership groups, you see that where you know sometimes they have very uh, minimal agendas. Other times they um, are very ad hoc. You know, they're not effective. You know, you're not taking advantage of diverse thinking there. But when they are 9.30 a.m. every single Monday and then, you know, 12 o'clock on a Thursday and they've got a very clear about what they're asked to look at and feedback on, then you've got much more chance of having that, you know, safe challenge and diversity of thinking integrated into the way that you operate. Brilliant. A couple of very quick fire questions to finish <laughs> off, Owen, and we haven't we haven't prepped you for these, so yeah, we'll be off the top of your head. But a good example of a leader or, or, or leadership trait that you've seen in, in the work you've done in the past. 
I think leaders who are able to paint a picture for their people of this is what we want to achieve together and this is how we go about it is just transformative. Um, so some wonderful examples around the place. In the US, I talk about Steve Kerr with the Golden State Warriors and Pete Carroll with the Seattle Seahawks. And the, you know they, they define their role as a leader is to build this vision with the team, but to lead on it. And they sketch it out and then the whole team will color it in together. Okay, so that's how they think about it. But then their day-to-day job is to keep everyone connected to the vision. And I feel that is a wonderful and important trait of a leader to be able to do that. And I actually would say, getting completely out of my lane here, I think that's one thing we lack in politicians often, is that they can sort of advise, you know, tell us about policies and taxes and laws and things, but it doesn't add up to a mental picture of where we're going. And I think that creates a lot of anxiety and confusion. So I think that's a, a, a really important trait. And I, you know, I get approached quite a lot for people who wanting to create a deeper, more meaningful vision, just not too sure how to go about it. It's something that doesn't seem to have been in the system, maybe, or been taught well. I don't know. But it's something that I'm, you know, a very common um, request that I get is to you know, coach people around how do we build a powerful vision and connect everybody to it. So I, it's something that is important to me, I think. Brilliant. Love that. And, and last one, a little bit more lighthearted. We've had seven or eight months now sat in our home. So is there any recommended reading or show on TV or podcast mm-hmm. that you've listened to? And it could be work related or it could be actually getting away from anything leadership related just to have a bit of downtime. But is there anything you've kind of delved into in the last six to eight months that you would recommend to anyone listening? I have, I have actually. I've I've read a hell of a lot, part, partly in research for the book. And I, I actually, I'll, I'll share something that's sort of a bit left field with you. Because there's been a lack of sport to watch, live sport, and I personally haven't really been able to fully get into the games without crowds. Um, the NBA and the NFL are big sports for me. And obviously the All Blacks haven't played for nearly a year. So, But what, what I've done actually is... Um, over the years, I've put together a digital sort of library of games of when I was a kid, like in the 1980s and things. And I've had that, you know, from different countries and different sports. And um, I have actually gone back into and watched some of those games. And I think what it's, it's actually been quite emotional in a strange way. It's brought back incredible memories uh, of when I would get up in the middle of the night and watch the All Blacks with my brothers um, and um, who my heroes were and just the way they played, which is different than now. And I've found it. I don't know. I don't know if the word's inspiring, but it's certainly given me a really warm feeling of both getting back to the purity of why I love sport in the first place, but also just reminding me that, you know, I've had a lot of privileged experiences over the last few years, but fundamentally how we did things in the past was also very impressive and something that we should never forget and never be feel conceited that we are better now than they were before us. Love that. Always good to reflect. And uh, I know John Porch, who uh, is in our content team, has done a lot of exactly the same as you have gone back over previous games of his beloved Irish team uh, and and watched those in lockdown. So he'll he'll, he'll be fond to hear of that. (laughs) Owen, that was terrific. And and always a pleasure to speak to you. And I'm glad we got this hour in because it's been been a long time. And I know the book is out next year. So please do use this opportunity just to give a top line plug for that. When's it out? And and when can people expect to, to hear about it? Yeah, it's uh, we're just in the final editing stage now. So the book's called Belonging. It comes out on May the 27th next year. And I'll definitely keep you guys posted on 
you know how that whole goes can't wait to read it owen thank you for the opportunity lovely to chat to you guys i really res- respect what you guys are doing great stuff owen thank you no not at all yeah we will uh, absolutely get you back on uh, whether that's uh, a virtual stage or a physical stage at an event in 2021 but no really looking forward to it thanks again owen and, and can't wait to read the book sounds fascinating keep well and stay safe thanks for coming on that's it for this episode, but if you've enjoyed these podcasts, they can find many more like it, as well as our At Home With Leaders series on the Leaders Content Hub on Spotify, iTunes, or your preferred platform. Check us out at leaders underscore insight on Twitter as well, as all our content will be posted on there. As I told you at the top of the episode, this feels like a new era for high performance, so we've seen this as an opportunity as a new era for the Leaders Performance Institute too. We've been working hard to provide our members with more access to diverse knowledge, skills and networks they need as performance environments evolve. If you want to push your thinking and actions even further, find out more about joining our unrivaled network of the world's high performance community by visiting our website at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Thanks to the content team and in particular John Porch behind the scenes for pulling these podcasts together. And thanks to our members and our network for the continued support on these conversations. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon.